Malaysian Twitter is a hot mess right now. I won't talk about the actual subject that sparked the debate around cultural appropriation, but there is one thing I will say. I have spent the last few months debating the adequacy of the Malay language as a medium for intellectual discourse. Sometimes, I use it as a deflection to avoid engaging in futile online arguments. But truthfully, I will not be dismissive about the Malay language. I think it has its strengths. I didn't get a lot of downtime this week, but between virtual meetings, translation work, recordings, and manuscript writing, I did spend some time reading up on linguistic determinism. It's not a new concept to me. I think it was introduced to me early in my university years. I didn't study linguistics, but I had to take at least two units of three different languages. Four, if you consider C++ a language. It was probably in academic English that I had learned about it. George Orwell's 1984 also introduced a fictional restrictive language, Newspeak, which is a form of linguistic determinism. The limited nature of the vocabulary and grammar of Newspeak renders its users unable to even think against a totalitarian state, let alone speak out against it. In a lot of ways, I can relate. Although I speak a few languages, I'm not what one would consider a native speaker in any, whatever that means. Sometimes I find it difficult to complete a thought, let alone express it. Linguistic determinism posits that language and its structure define the boundaries of the expression of ideas. If the language does not provide the means to express or process a thought, such as when the word for it doesn't exist, then the user cannot possibly conceptualize the idea. There are, of course, many criticisms against this. I won't go into the details of it in a short audio clip, but here are some examples of linguistic determinism based on published research. Number one, the color orange. There wasn't an English word for the color until 200 years after the fruit arrived in Europe. Similarly, in Malay, the word for both the fruit and the color is oren, like orange, but easier to rhyme with. But speak to any Malay speakers from my grandparents' generation, and they will call the color orange merah, which is red. Put two objects in front of them, one that's red and one that's orange, and they will find it harder than the younger generation to distinguish the colors. To them, they're looking at the same shade, because their older form of Malay doesn't differentiate between the two colors. Number two, smell. Of all our major senses, our sense of smell is said to be the least developed. I say this in air quotes. And that's strange for a species that has a long history of scent making, all the way back to 1200 BC thanks to Taputi. After all, the perfume industry is one of the most luxurious markets today. Yet, if we go to a perfume shop, we see fragrance being categorized as fruity or floral or woody. These are all words that are in relation to other things, fruits, flowers and wood. We describe a smell as something that's like lavender, or the ocean, or a pinewood forest, or sourish, musty, minty, or the generic pleasant smell, or sharp smell, or strong smell. Odors don't have their own English names. They're all derived from other things and subjective to the smellless experience. So we struggle to identify and distinguish odors. It's not like blue and red, or left and right, or today and tomorrow. In fact, there are very few languages with a robust vocabulary for smells. The Jahai language in Malaysia is one of the few. Jahai speakers find it as easy to name odors as it is to name colors, whereas English speakers struggle with odor naming far greater than they do with identifying colors. 
Even the Malay language has a wider range of words for smells compared to the English language. Among my favorites are hangit, which is specific to the smell of slightly burnt overcooked rice, hanye, a fishy odor, hamis, for the sweaty smell of beef, and hunching, for the smell of urine. Number three, time, which we're running out of, but briefly, users of different languages may perceive the passage of time differently. One of the basic characteristics of grammar is tenses. It allows the user to express time relative to the moment of thought. There are three main tenses, present, past, and future. In English, they can be further divided into four aspects, simple, progressive, perfect, and perfect progressive. But some languages like Malay have no tenses. And if you speak English or Malay, you could be experiencing the passage of time mainly as a distance traveled, long weekend, short holiday, while speakers of other languages experience it as a growing volume, big day, small break. Yeah, the last two phrases are used in the English language, but as a marker of importance, not necessarily the perceived passage of time. A big day was a memorable one. A small break was a short but noteworthy time. So for users of more than one language, it can get messy, depending on what language your brain is currently operating in. For me though, regardless of what language you're talking to me in, telling me our meeting is pushed back two hours doesn't mean anything to me. Is the 12pm meeting now at 10am or 2pm? Just send me a calendar update. Okay, gotta go. P.S. Do you know that the next generation of children who will never have to tell time with an analog clock will perceive time differently than the rest of us?